Welcome to the Sleep for Performance podcast. Today I am joined by Spencer Roberts. Do you know Spencer? Every time I see your name, I want to say Spencer Fisher. Yeah, right. I get Spencer Tracy often, but Spencer Tracy. <laughs> Spencer, Spencer Fisher used to fight in the UFC. Um, oh, right. Maybe maybe ten or more years ago. Spencer, and he's called himself Spencer the Kingfisher. So if I see your name, I always say Spencer Fisher, but I was correct myself every time. Even if I read one of your papers, I was like, Spencer, Spencer Roberts. <laughs> so Spencer for, um, <laughs> I'll start calling you Spencer Fisher. That's going to happen in my head. Spencer, for the uh, for the, for the the people out there in the, the world of the internet that don't know you, can you give us a quick kind of intro and background on, on who you are and where you're from? Yeah, so uh, I'm a, I guess, an academic uh, sports scientist based in Melbourne, uh, in Australia, I recently finished my PhD, which was really looking at sleep in athletes, um, trying to understand a little bit more about their sleep, and then and then also, I guess, effects on their performance and health. Um, since finishing my PhD, um, you know, I've I've got a lectureship here at Deakin University, so so still in exercise and sports science and focusing on the sleep question, I guess. Um, so yeah, lately we've been doing work on on sort of dietary interventions to try and try and improve sleep in athletes, um, and also starting to look at you know how how measures of sleep, um, objective measures of sleep might be able to give us an idea of I guess the recovery of athletes and and injury risk and that kind of thing as well. So yeah, approaching it from a few different angles in terms of sleep in athletes, but but I think there's a lot of um, I guess exciting work to be done. Yeah. And so Spencer, when, so obviously you got that sports science background and that's how you've come out from to the sleep angle. Um, did you play any sport growing up? Did you, were you interested in anything? What, what kind of brought you into that career? Yeah, I was sports mad. Yeah. So, um, played a lot of Australian football, um, you know, to a reasonable level, got to kind of the sort of elite junior ranks sort of under 18 where they draft all the, um, all the pros from, I guess, but wasn't quite good enough to get there and played a bit of cricket as well. And, um, and, and now I've kind of don't play football anymore or cricket, but, um, do a lot of sort of swimming and open water swimming. So yeah, I'll just, I'm super competitive and, you know, oh. if it's, if it's marbles, I'll, I'll take it seriously, whatever it is. So <laughs> love <laughs> sport. Want, yeah. One of those guys. Yeah. 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 I, 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 people, people have already heard this before, but, um, yeah, I started swimming about three or four years ago, um, just yeah, to right. take a bit of recovery from. Um, from running a bit of burnout from doing long distance running, and um, yeah. I started swimming, and then within within a year, so I started off and I swam a hundred meters and nearly died. And then within a year, I did the duo to Rotness, which is a twenty k swim. So we did ten yeah, k's each. I've done then, I've done the Rotness. Have you done that? Yeah. yeah. And then last year I did the solo. So yeah. Yeah, I've done a solo. I haven't oh, yeah. done the team yet, but oh, that's something we have in common. That's, impre- that's impressive if you only just started swimming recently and you've already knocked off a solo crossing of Rottnest Channel. Well, I'm not competitive. I wouldn't say like, like what you're saying. I don't want to win, but I want to yeah. do is just like, yeah. I don't know. If I can't do something, it's like I want to do it. It's like yeah. I kind of call myself a bit of a, you know, you know you're yeah. piss weak. I kind of said to myself and go, you can do it. If you don't do this, you're even pissing more piss weak. So it's yeah. more an internal battle than an external. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> So you do, do, are you interested in the long distance swimming as well then? Yeah. So I, I did a bit of sort of squad swimming as a kid and then had to kind of choose when I went to school, had to, um, was kind of told I had to play cricket and footy. Um, and then, so I had to drop the swimming at that point, but yeah, for the same reason, just because swimming is such sort of, um, low impact on the body, 
I took it up sort of in my mid twenties again and, and got yeah. back into it. And now I do yeah open water stuff. And I've done a couple of those marathon swims and including that Rottnest channel. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd agree with you there. Like, um, as I've said to you before the podcast, like I'm 43 now and I just find that the more long distance running I do or the more training I do, the worse I am. Yeah. And even my wife said to me last week, she goes, cause I'm training to do, um, like laps of a race where yeah. you keep going to the last man standing. Now the guy's going to do like probably 320 or something. Yeah. Cause the record was broken there a few weeks ago and another one. I'm just going to run for a hundred Ks and, and someone said, oh, just a hundred, but compared to that guy, it's, it's just a hundred. Yeah. But even training for that, like, it's just absolutely killing me again, just getting back out and doing that training compared to, at least when you swim in the morning, you go and swim like, you know, five, six, seven years, you have something to eat, you might have a little 20 minute nap. You can go and walk around the shops in the afternoon. You can have yeah. a life. But when yeah. you go and you run like 30, 40 years, you're getting around like Frankenstein for the rest of the day. And yeah. every time you get up and down off the chair, you're cracking and fucking creaking. <laughs> like it's just, and you're just like, oh, uh, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's just so hard on the body after a while, you know, and it's only the last few years that really has started to, to kill yeah. me. So, um, yeah, I see yeah. why you took up swimming again. <laughs> It makes sense, yeah. Yeah. So do you have any swims planned, long distance swims? Uh, not at the moment. I've got a little daughter, a two year old. Oh. And so she's cut the training, oh, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's obviously it's great. Um, but but in terms of it's not good for your swimming fitness. Uh, <laughs> so the tr the training has dropped back a lot in the last couple of years. So I'm just trying to maintain a level of fitness now so that I can get back into it in the next few years. So we should uh, put a little asterisk here and we should have a chat afterwards because I've collected data on sleep and performance in 25 um, marathon swimmers. Yeah, right. I have the data and I haven't really looked at it that much in detail for publication. So we should put an asterisk there for that as a conversation offline. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's get back to um, what we were talking about. So you, um, yeah, so you grew up, you know, playing sport in Melbourne, when did sports science, did you, did you do sports science at Deakin as well? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So they can't get rid of me. So, so I was going to say, you, you did all your, your undergraduate, you did your PhD at Deakin, now you're working there. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I don't know how, you know, I don't know. I've seen a couple of people have done that. They went to school and ended up teaching with our teachers. I think on the first yeah. day, I just want to knock them out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. A bit of that. <laughs> a bit of that as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, Excellent. All right. So um, what was the focus of your PhD? What was the kind of overarching um, goals of that PhD? Yeah, so it was. It really had, there was kind of an initial component, like a literature review where we're just trying to understand the sleep challenges of athletes a bit more. And, and um, you know, and what came out of that, as you know, is that a lot of athletes do struggle with their sleep for various reasons. And so, and then aside from that, what we were really looking at is, well, what can we do in terms of like, um, in terms of improving performance potentially. So there was a big focus in my PhD in, in sleep extension yeah. and not a lot of work, I guess, had been done. So it was all lab-based work, but recruiting sort of pretty well high-trained athletes um, that were cyclists, um, just trying to understand how sleep extension, like there's a lot of information out there about sleep restriction and sleep loss affecting or negatively affecting performance. And so we looked into really whether sleep extension could improve it and, and I guess the, you know, we, we found that it did. So, um, you know, in particular, that cumulative getting, you know, I think our study um, guys were getting maybe an hour, hour and a half more sleep each night for, for two or three nights. And after three nights of, of getting just a little bit extra sleep, 
we found that their sort of endurance time trial performance had improved by a couple of minutes, which is, you know, a big, big improvement in performance when, when you're talking, you know, these kind of events are typically decided in, in seconds. Um, so, yeah, the focus of the PhD was really on that. And then we did a little bit of some other stuff around um, heart rate, how heart rate regulation um, is affected by sleep as well. Um, and I guess the focus, the, the reason for that was because we know that heart rate is used quite a lot in, in trying to sort of monitor um, athlete recovery status or readiness. Um, there's a few different words used for that. Um, but yeah, and so we wanted to see what effects sleep might be having on their, their on, on that particular metric. So, so whether, whether they were, whether heart rate is sensitive to changes in sleep. So that's kind of. Excellent. So if we look at, let's say, just sleep extension for a moment and just to define this term, um, sleep extension basically is what it says. It's extended sleep. So if someone's getting six hours per night, you want to get them up to an average of seven hours per night. Yeah. So were you looking at sleep extension over multiple nights or like just an acute, like one night? Because some of the stuff that you read is like, oh, you got one night sleep and I felt brilliant the next day. It's all kind of anecdotal or yeah. one night sleep about 10 hours. So was it like over multiple days, multiple weeks? Yeah, it was it was over several days. So so what we did was we we measured their habitual sleep, so how they slept normally. Um, and then and then based on that, we, we tried to increase their their bedtime by 30% and kind of crossed crossed our fingers and hoped that that by that by increasing their bedtime they would actually get more sleep and not just lay awake. Fortunately that's what happened. And we did it over so we did it over three consecutive nights. So we were trying to, because we were looking at a cycling sample, we were trying to mimic to some extent the, the sort of um, tour events that they have in cycling, in the road cycling, where they, where they yeah. literally race on consecutive days. Now, we couldn't, we couldn't uh, do sort of a three-week um, study. Um, that was going to be too onerous, but we, but we managed to do four consecutive days of testing, so three consecutive nights of extended sleep. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, like they, um, after one night of extended sleep, we didn't see any effect on performance. And after two nights, there was no effect on performance. But after the third night of extended sleep, that's when we started to see this divergence and the sleep extension really having a benefit and, and improving their times. So I guess it really highlights that importance of, of cumulative sleep and, and getting consistent good sleep rather than just one night. Yeah. yeah, I think that's what happens in the community, you know, generally across, would say, even professional athletes, actually, the same thing that I've worked with, even amateur athletes, and then across, like, would say, shift workers who, you know, want to be kind of serious on the weekend, mm. they kind of kill themselves during the week and then try and sleep in on the weekend. And so oh, I got like 10 hours, 10, I, I get like great sleep, and it, it kind of depends the picture, like, they get nine or 10 hours, but it's only mm. on the weekend, but during the week, they're, they're burning yeah. themselves out. Yeah. So, so with the sleep extension, so from athletes going from, let's say, habitual of six hours to went up to like seven hours per night, what would the magnitude of like the, the awakenings, did, did that increase proportional with that? So what we call like, you know, wake after sleep onset and um, wazo. So as yeah. told, sleep goes up, you might get wazo going up and it's a combination of sleep duration, mm. the wazo and the time it takes you to fall asleep will be the total time in bed. Mm. For, for anybody listening, that's that's how we would look at it. It's that total time in bed that Spencer's saying, but then how much of that was utilized for sleep? So what's kind of like the utilization metric of the of the bed for actual sleep 
and not just kind of waking up looking at the wall or you know trying to fall asleep yeah so from memory they um they were around six and a half their normal actual sleep time was around six and a half hours and then it went up to over eight hours after sleep extension so that's actual sleep actual sleep that's quite big of a jump that's actual sleep yeah so it was over an hour sleep extension each night that they achieved um in terms of yeah like the 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 waso and the, the sort of sleep quality metrics and the awakenings for the first couple of nights it was fairly similar to their normal sleep but then what we did see was um for the third night that uh their sleep efficiency actually dropped a little bit which which isn't or we don't think what we think was happening happening there was that because they were getting more sleep that their actual sleep need what we call that as you know that homeostatic drive for sleep had actually reduced a little bit so it's not necessarily a concern at that point when you're getting so much sleep if your sleep efficiency drops a little bit it's kind of a a good indication that that you're perhaps getting enough sleep at that point so so that that occurred on the third um the third night where their sleep efficiency started to drop off a bit but spencer's using sleep efficiency as a bit of a like misleading indicator Correct. Yeah, because of the yeah. sleep onset latency. Well, not just because of that. Well, you take out like the true calculation of sleep onset latency of sleep efficiency. You will do it by time in bed. You won't reduce the sleep onset. That's another. That's yeah. another thing as well. That people do that as well in papers. I've seen that where they don't actually. When you do the, so what we're talking about here is when you calculate sleep efficiency, when you have any wearable, what they're doing is taking sleep duration multiplying it by a hundred and dividing it by the total time in bed. And the total time in bed should be sleep latency, sleep duration, and wake after sleep onset. But some devices and some people in papers will actually use what we call probably more apt being a sleep opportunity. So they'll do the time in bed will actually not include the sleep latency. So it improves your sleep efficiency measure, makes it look really good. So that's what happens as well. But the other thing as well, I think sleep efficiency is a bit misleading because if I have an athlete that goes to, goes to bed at like two o'clock in the morning and gets up at five, they have three hours in bed yeah. total, but they've only slept for, mm. for like two hours, 45, their sleep efficiency is like 96. I'm like, oh, yeah, 96% sleep efficiency. This is really yeah. good. But you've yeah. only been three hours in bed. Yeah. You've only slept two hours, 45, so you're not hitting the metric. So, yeah. Just, and that's what. Yeah, I completely agree. That's one of my, I guess, bugbears with with a lot of the wearable tech, you know, that that kind of is is telling consumers that they're sleeping well, whereas you really need to know the context around it. And like you say, if you exactly. if you really if, if you're really sleep deprived, you're going to have a higher sleep efficiency, but it doesn't mean your sleep's good. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Just, yeah, you're not getting enough of it. Yeah. So it's yeah, don't don't use that as a, as in you know perfect sleep. You know, it's only no. basically like a utilization measure of of the time you used it. You know. It's like yeah. you drove your car to the shop and back. Did you spend so much time idling at the traffic lights or you parked over to check your phone? It's all downtime, really. Mm. Um, with the sleep extension, um, Spencer, and you were with, when you were trying to increase sleep extension, um, people would maybe be thinking, well, how do I actually increase sleep extension? Did he give them a tablet? Did he give them some sort of like music? Did he sing to them? Did he play a whale <laughs> music? Did he stroke their hair? How did he actually make people sleep longer? And so you've you've spoken about the sleep extension opportunity, if you want to call it that, or more time Correct. in bed. But did you do anything else to promote sleep during that time? Yeah, so we did a few things. So the, firstly, we measured people's um, circadian phenotype or, the, or their chronotype. So in other words, whether they were 
an evening person or a morning person. And so from that, when we did extend their bedtime, you know, for example, if they were an evening person, we wouldn't try and ask them to go to bed earlier. Rather, we would yeah. give them give them an opportunity to sleep in and, and vice versa. So, so with our sort of prescribed bedtimes, when we tried to give them an increased sleep opportunity, we kind of tailored it to their individual chronotype. And then, and then on top of that, it was a case of just providing sort of an education session on on sleep hygiene strategies. So, so you know, all the all the sort of sleep hygiene stuff that we hear about around, you know, for example, not having caffeine in the afternoon, um, dim light in the final hour, few hours before bed, um, you know, room to cool room, um, bedroom temperature, you know, that kind of thing. So we, we had a session on that with each of the guys and. And, and so between doing that, providing some sleep hygiene recommendations and then tailoring their, their new bedtime to their, their chronotype, we, we were able to see those increases in sleep yeah. duration. So there was no singing, there was no stroking people's hair. No. There was no, no. soft there was no soft music. There was no chocolate. No, I didn't have the funding for that. I didn't I, <laughs> I would love to get a research assistant over there to give them massages and, and, and can you imagine that as a study you're just lying looking at something in the eyes just rubbing her hair yeah off to sleep now off singing to lullabies sleep now. everything's <laughs> okay <laughs> you just like that lying about going <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so um when you had the people in the lab spencer how were you measuring their sleep were you using um psg or a cut down version of psg or were you using actigraphy no yeah so that it was actigraphy yeah um so the guys they actually slept at home but came into the lab each day to do okay, their yeah. exercise testing yeah. yeah so we used actigraphy um you know i would have loved to use psg um but we're you know for that particular study it was it was actigraphy yeah but i think when you're doing multiple nights like actigraphy is probably more you know what's the term people are ecologically valid because getting set up like with psg every night is a pain in the ass it takes about an hour and yeah. I think as well, like there's probably a middle ground between PSG and actigraphy, maybe for long-term use to get more measures, you know, with maybe some sleep staging. But you know, I think yeah. like, PSG is it's it's the, yeah, it's whilst it's the gold standard, you know, it's really a pain in the ass to do. Mm. And people don't sleep well. So you're not going to get like real sleep measures out of it in terms of how people sleep. Yeah. Or anybody else, you're really just going in there to diagnose a sleep disorder. Yeah, correct. Yeah. That's really what it's for. It's not. Yeah. If I, was to, I can't, I wouldn't, there's no way I put PSG on somebody for seven nights of the week. It's absolutely no way. So I think actigraphy is probably, is better. I would like to see some kind of hybrid approach so maybe with some, you know, sleep staging and, and some yeah. movement. That'd be the way to go, I think. Yeah. Well, that's why I think it's an exciting space at the moment because there is some of that technology coming out, as I'm sure you're aware, like that some of these sort of headbands that, yeah. You know, you can wear you can wear at home, and and they're showing some good validity in terms of providing some sleep staging as well. So, I think it's going to be yeah fascinating in the next few years to see what comes out around around having more understanding about what's actually going on during the sleep, rather than just those sort of actigraphy based measures. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it'll be it'll be um it should be an area to watch. Um, so the other um area um. Spencer, that you've looked at as well, is you've actually looked at some stuff in the preseason, which I was quite interested in because we've just released a paper where, well, Angus Teese and Matt Triller, and yeah. I was invited onto it as well in, in rugby. So not that I did much on it, but <laughs> <laughs> we just wrote yeah. my name. 
Um, but you know, you would you'd study here as well the sleep of elite Australian rules footballers uh, during preseason. And what mm. was cool about that study was, first of all, no one really looks at preseason or off season. Everybody's kind of in the season stuff. But two, you looked at men and women, and there's a mm. there's a scarcity of like you know, let's say yeah. a female female based sleep research and even female based sports research. So it was great to see the difference in that. What what sort of kicked off that paper? Yeah, so like you say, a lot of it was around, you know, we just need more um, research in the female, in sports science among female athletes. Like it's just, there's just a dearth of research there. So we, um, at, at Deakin, we have um, some partnerships with some some AFL slash AFLW clubs. Um, and so we were able to get access to those players and we thought it would just be a good idea to, to using the exact same, I guess, methods and measurement tools and everything. So um, just to compare the sleep of the men and the women, because there are other sort of interesting differences that that we are already aware about, like things, sort of injury incidents between the men and women is slightly different and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, potentially sleep's playing a role in that to some small extent. And so, yeah, we wanted to just see how they were going in the preseason, men versus women, um, in terms of in terms of their sleep. Um, and it's a little bit of comparing apples versus oranges at this stage, because obviously. You know the men are fully full-time professional athletes, whereas whereas the women at the moment are still sort of semi-professional. So they still you know work outside of the game, but but we still thought it was a worthwhile comparison to do, and and certainly the results told us that the, the women in particular, um, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement there there with their sleep, which um, you know it's difficult to tease out why they might be sleeping much more poorly than the men at the moment, but um, you know. There's, yeah, probably to some extent it is the fact that they're juggling all those life pressures in addition to their sport. Um, what, was yeah. the, what was the Spencer, in terms of like sleep duration between male and female? Um, so in terms of the average sleep duration, it was like the men were sleeping just under eight hours, I think, and, and the women were, were around seven hours in terms of sleep duration. Um, but when you actually break down those numbers and, and looked at sort of what percentage of the, of the cohort we're sort of below what's recommended. So like if we take the National Sleep Foundation recommendations of, of at least seven hours of sleep per night, you know, it was at least sort of, it was 50% of AFLW players, so the women, at least 50% of them weren't meeting that sort of sleep recommendation, whereas in the men, sort of almost 90% are meeting seven hours per night on a regular basis. So so a big chunk of the women, uh, yeah, not not getting enough sleep. And we saw similar stuff or similar findings with, with the sleep quality metrics as well. That's interesting as I tried to hide a sneeze there, but um, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> that. That's what happens when you get old. Um, we actually found um, some different stuff in female basketball players that, um, and we didn't compare them against males, but we did have three coaches as part of the cohort. And although it was a small sample size for the, players and uh and the coaches it was actually you know the full team you know we had like mm. you know, i think it was 14 players and we had three coaches it was like everybody participated so that was kind of a positive you know the low numbers and as you know as well it's kind of like yeah yeah coming back from a reviewer you're very low numbers like increased it's like what can you do you can't like yeah. you kind of can't multiply the team you know yeah. so it's a hundred percent participation you can't ask for anything better than that but yeah we actually found with the female athletes in that team I think they're technically semi-pro as well. They're at the Perth Links here. 
Mm. Over eight hours a night, like eight hours, two minutes. But the coach yeah. is like six and a half hours. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Uh, yeah, and the coaches then, you know, we kind of observed them as well. And it was like what you said, you, you can't like kind of compare them in terms of statistical analysis because one, the numbers are completely different, but two, it's apples versus zucchinis, well, coaches and players, really. So, yeah. So, yeah, but the coaches had the biggest improvement in sleep when we looked at um, sleep hygiene intervention. So, a two hour yeah. education where, you know, we give yeah. them back, we, well, before the hygiene intervention we get them all their own individual report and we sat with them and said here's the things you can prove personally and then we did the big out big session as a group and the mm. coaches went up like some coaches went up like, like 90 minutes a night yeah wow so it's crazy like just and you yeah. think to yourself like oh that wouldn't have such an effect like surely people know the sleep hygiene principles at this stage surely people know the basics of sleep and probably because we repeat ad nauseum every day yeah we probably expect the whole world to know but yeah it still is a light bulb for some people they go oh i didn't know you could Oh, I didn't know that. And then so they start making, you know, extra yeah. time and start feeling better. So um it's pretty interesting. But it's interesting that the female players here were getting like so much less because we found they were getting, you know, quite high, you know. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. I'd love to uh, in these in these women, I'd love to do something similar to that, some kind of intervention and see if we could see those those improvements. Cause I think often it's just a case of of making the players aware that that sleep is important. And if you can show them some data. You know, some some of the most powerful things that that I've been able to do is is just showing them sort of relationships between sleep and 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 performance that um yeah athletic performance and that's often enough for people to say oh you know sleep is something I actually need to pay attention to it's it, you know it's kind of the forgotten dimension I guess of of performance and health I think as well Spencer like there's there's so much marketing out there about sports recovery that yeah. people kind of just gravitate towards at first. The cryo chamber, the sauna, cold water immersion, massage, yeah. buy some yeah. sort of boo, get in the moon boo, sniff this yeah. salt, drink this drink. Nobody yeah. really kind of goes, oh, wow, sleep. And that's just, yeah. <laughs> it's not being marketed, you know. I think that's part of the problem, yeah. actually. Yeah, true. You know, so it, maybe maybe we should just maybe start selling sleep packages to people where yeah, we, selling, we just selling, write them a note. <laughs> selling pajamas or something. <laughs> well, I wouldn't discount it. I think you might make yeah. some money off it. There's people yeah. that are making money off mattresses that help you sleep better. You yeah. know, it's the it's the number one question I get off people who don't really understand what I do and like, maybe ask we me could, advice on beds. Yeah, we, maybe we could make pajamas that have printed on them all the sleep hygiene recommendations, so that when you're sitting on the couch, you can. It's read not a bad off. idea. That's not actually. That's a pretty good idea, Spencer. Yeah, we should. We should um, let's just kill this recording. Now I was going to. We should keep that quiet. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> yeah, I might just make a note here to edit this out. It's, uh, Twenty-five minutes in, right? Edit out pajama comment. Okay. Um. Yeah. Already couple pictures of us on like Bert and Ernie OSS Sesame Street. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've totally forgotten the question I was going to ask you. So. Um, so you with the preseason, you didn't look at any sort of uh, measures into the season. It was just a preseason phase. Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. It was just a just a couple of weeks over preseason. Actually, at the moment, I have some data from from last year where we're looking. This this was in the men, um, the the elite men, um, AFL players, Australian football players, and and we have season long data. So I'm excited to get my teeth into that um, to see what yeah, see what we find you know, right through preseason, during the season, and then even into finals. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, it was during COVID that we collected that data. So there's a few sort of confounding factors, like the guys are sleeping in a hotel the whole time. 
because they were in a hub. Um, but but um, it still be interesting to see what that what that data tells us. Yeah. What I don't think anybody's really. I don't think I've seen any stuff on this. And this is something we talk about, kind of this cumulative season fatigue, which is a combination of like let's say muscular fatigue, travel fatigue, you know, yeah. fatigue from lack of sleep. And it often gets kind of used just as a catch-all term, like season fatigue or cumulative fatigue. I don't think I've seen any papers looking at that really. Have you? No, no. no. I know. I know you've done a little bit around. Is it? Is it sort of pain, like muscle pain, and? No, that wasn't me. No. Oh, okay. No. Just some, people, some people looked at the day after games, and you know, I haven't, I haven't done anything in season fatigue. Not that I know of. Yeah. <laughs> <I have> to <laughs> check. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, I just want research get here and check my work. No, (laughs) (laughs) no. um, You know, we've done very much kind of chronobiology stuff. You know, in the athletes and in in industry as well. You know, looking at um, looking at stuff. The only thing that kind of gets over into, we'll say, the pain world, which we have some crossover, which we'll talk about in a second, is um, working with a student looking at um, irritable bowel syndrome or IBS and its effect on sleep and mental health. That's about the. Yeah, I haven't yeah. anything for pain. I, I, I don't think pain is real. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> when, you, when you run 100 k's, fair enough. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I've been paying every day. I don't worry about that. <laughs> um, before we talk about diet, Spencer, I do want to just touch on one of the systematic review that you brought out a while ago, um, which I had up a minute ago, and then I was too busy there clicking on my own work there to find out what yours was. But you had the the title was the effects of training and competition on sleep of elite athletes, a systematic review and meta analysis. Do you just want to give an give us an overview of um, well, first of all, what a systematic and meta analysis is for people who may not have heard of one, and then maybe then just lead into what what you found on that because there was some really interesting findings on this. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll do my best to remember all of this a fair bit in, in that paper. But um, in terms of yeah, systematic review is is really just um searching all the literature that's that's out there in our case essentially all the literature that that had been published previously on sleep and athletes and it's systematic in that i suppose there's a systematic way in which you sift through the all those papers so you do a big search you might get four or five thousand hits or records that you have to sift your way through and so there's a systematic way to do it and you you eventually end up with with a a a set of studies that, that kind of fit your criteria and that, that you think will tell you a, a pretty sort of whole holistic picture of, of how athletes are sleeping. In this case, it was the effects of competition and training on sleep. But I guess the meta-analysis part, it, it's kind of considered, I guess, one of the highest sort of levels of evidence because it's where you actually compile in a quantitative way the data from different studies um, and then sort of analyse the whole sort of collective data from several studies and, and reanalyze it in a sense. Um, so that's the meta-analysis part of it. So we were able to do that for looking at the effects of um, days prior to competition. So how athletes are sleeping in the lead up to a competition. And I suppose for that particular part, the, the big finding was, and it's no surprise to you because you would have seen all the papers, but the big part of it was just how much, athletes sleep is negatively affected on the night of competition particularly particularly following an evening um competition yeah. so so yeah for the listeners it's it's probably a captain obvious you know it's not so surprising that you know if if athletes are competing at eight nine o'clock ten o'clock at night 
they're probably not going to sleep that well, but but we, we were able to sort of show that I think on average they kind of slept about 60 minutes less the night of competition compared with previous nights. And and that really has implications potentially for, for the time course of recovery. And like we know in, in sort of European sport, like the, the I'll say football or soccer in Australia, um, you know, like they, it's some of the clubs competing sort of every three days or every three or four days when they have those European competitions. And if you're competing at night, not getting enough sleep, you know, how's that affecting your recovery going, potentially going into another game? So that was, um, you yeah, know, some of the findings. And we also looked at um, a few other things, like we found that that sort of increases in training load. So, so a large increase in training load seems to have a negative effect on your performance. Um which might be due to sort of sort of elevated stress symptoms, uh, stress systems, I should say, um, during heavy training periods. So like increases in cortisol and sympathetic hyperactivity. Um, we looked at uh, travel. So again, another one that you know people perhaps not surprised to hear that the travel can negatively affect athletes' performance. Uh, oh, sorry, athletes' sleep. Um, but but one of the interesting parts of that one was that we found that often athletes are just like, they'll have an early morning flight, you know, so like they'll, they'll get up at four or five o'clock in the morning to, to catch a plane. And, and, and so they've experienced a significant amount of sleep there. And then they've sat on a plane, you know, experiencing more sort of fatigue sitting on the plane. And it kind of raises the question that if you don't have to get up early to get on a plane, then, then perhaps it's better not to. Um, what else? What were some of the other outcomes we had? Um, just trying to think. I think we looked at altitude as well. There are a few studies yeah. out there that have that have investigated the effect of altitude, and and yeah, again, traveling to altitude is something that negatively affects athletes' sleep. So, I think one of the recommendations in the paper is that is that you know if you're traveling to altitude for 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 training, you, you probably need to give your athletes a few days of their sleep to normalize before just hitting them straight away with, with some sort of intense altitude training. Um, yeah, I think, all, I think they're all very interesting points um, there, Spencer. I think there's some interesting ones there to pick on for a moment because, you know, you spoke about the competition and the night of, and that's, you give the example like every three days in soccer, mm. but even in basketball, they have double headers to play yeah. two nights in a row. Or if you look at Major League Baseball in America, 162 yeah. games or something in 180 days. Yeah. Plus travel. So, they so play, this, don't they play in baseball sort of three or four nights in a row kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. So imagine, yeah. I wonder, that'd be fascinating to see the, this, that study, like looking at sleep across the three or four nights of a, of a mini series that they have. I'll, I'll talk to you after this. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so there's lots of, lots of sports like that where it's just back to back competition. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's quite it's quite interesting. Yeah, mm. and then I think the other thing he spoke about there is altitude as well. So mm. I'll use a personal example. In two thousand and twelve and thirteen, I went to Colorado to run. So I had travel, mm. jet lag, fifteen time zones, and I went to ten thousand feet. So what's that? Three thousand meters or something? Yeah. So the first year I did, I went out like less than a week. Yeah. Dropped, dropped out with eighty eight miles into the rest. The second year I went out two and a half weeks beforehand, climatized the altitude, got over the jet lag, finished the rest. 
But I think it's a, yeah. it's a massive factor. And then yeah. the other thing as well with altitude, if you have any underlying sleep-related breathing disorder, that is going to be mm. exacerbated or made worse. Yeah, that's a good that point. Time. Yeah. And I think like um, I've been working in Formula One this year with McLaren racing team and mm. um, McLaren released that information by the way. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not speaking on a school they put okay. on the article about the work, but yeah, cool. in the Formula One calendar, they have a race at Mexico and Mexico is a, is a high altitude city. So yeah. I think it's like, a, it's an area where people don't even consider that. You, know, you fly in, but you fly in on the Monday or Tuesday, you've flown in mm. and you have jet lag or travel fatigue and you're, and you're coming to a period of altitude. It's, it's not yeah. easy to adapt to. No, no. So, yeah, I think, um, I think these are all factors that, you know, play into people's recovery, as you've said in this paper as well. And from yeah. a practical standpoint of view, if you start thinking about different sports and the applications of all those factors, how do they actually apply? And so in Formula One, you could say the same thing. If it's a night yeah. race, you know, so. And the, you, could, you could make a case that the the, well, the consequences of not being recovered or, or being sleep deprived for a Formula One athlete are, you know, more significant, you know, more severe than, 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 than any other athlete. Yeah, like if you watch F1 on the weekend, average speed, I think for Lewis Hamilton winning the race was 198 kilometers the car. That was the average. Yeah. You don't want to be cognitively impaired when you're when you're going at those speeds. Yeah, but the top speed was like three hundred nine kilometers. Like that's wow. like fighter yeah. pilots, you know. It's yeah. it's absolutely bananas. Yeah. Yeah. And Spencer, before we before we wrap up, I do want to touch on one area, which your new area, which I'm interested in, is the area with diet, nutrition, and objective mm -hmm. sleep measures in athletes. How are you, how are you tackling this problem? Yeah, so so doing a few, there's a couple, I think one or two papers out or maybe under review at the moment um, on that, again, looking at professional footballers, um, just trying to see if, if, if diet can be used in a sort of prescriptive way to, to improve sleep. Um, so there's some interesting things around diet, you know, like tryptophan, which is a precursor of melatonin, which I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware is, is kind of a sleep-promoting hormone. So in turkey and milk yeah so for those yeah. people who want to eat a leg of turkey and drink a pint of milk before you go to bed this is where it is yeah exactly and so we were, we were kind of looking at um some of our work is, is looking at sort of um i guess prescribing tryptophan in the evening for athletes but the, the i think the published study that we have at the moment has has looked more around just associations between sort of normal dietary factors and there's some interesting things around that as well I think we found, for example, that um, sort of evening sugar intake reduced sleep durations. So it has a negative effect on, on these sort of professional footballers' sleep. So, you know, there's been a little bit of stuff done on, on or research done on, on diet-sleep relationships, but, but really hardly anything done on professional athletes. So, so we're trying to kind of sort of tap into that a little bit more. Um, and, and I think the other thing we found in that particular study was uh, that that if the larger the gap was between a player's last meal and bedtime, the more or the less sleep they got. Um, Are you saying so, the larger the gap between their last meal and bedtime? Yeah, so around meal timing, exactly. So if there's a big, okay. a bigger gap, so you know it's hard to, I guess, elucidate the reasons why, but um, potentially because these guys have such high energy demands that if they're not going to bed you know with a decent amount of food in their tummies that they might be waking up due to hunger 
um, even if it's subconsciously during the night, you know, that, that's kind of a speculation as to what might be happening there. But, but yeah, the guys who had a meal sort of closer to bedtime slept longer. That's interesting, Spencer, because lots of people are playing around with intermittent fasting at the moment, talking about time-restricted feeding and so on. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that's um, that's that's interesting. Now, it's my understanding that most people are time-restricting feeding by time-restricting their morning feed yeah. as opposed to their evening, but some people may be playing around with that. So, yeah. Um, and interest, actually, interesting enough, I have a friend who's a Buddhist monk, and he's Irish, oh, yeah. actually, yeah, and he's... um. Yeah. He listens to the podcast, so shout out to him, Buddha Rakata, up in oh, Sri Lanka. Okay. He's in Sri Lanka wow. at the moment. Yeah, um, PhD, PhD in chemistry, so he's a he's a clever oh, wow. cookie. Yeah, but he he, for example, in his in his order of like the monks, what they do is they they eat bre- breakfast and lunch, but then fast in the afternoon, and so they don't actually eat and until yeah, the right. next morning. So they might finish their afternoon meal around one o'clock, and then don't eat until the next morning until they wake up at whatever you know five six whatever. That's yeah, a long time. Without that food. Is. So, yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. There is applications for it. People are going, who does that? Well, what does monks yeah. do? But they're yeah. not working a full-time job. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I was going to say something, but I've forgotten it now. That's all right. I cut you off with that funny, stupid <laughs> story. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. <laughs> so, but that, that is interesting about that time restricted feeding because, like I said, people, <clears throat> people will be playing around with different timing. So it'll be interesting. If any athletes are reducing the afternoon uh, feed, whether that's affecting then their actual sleep or if they're eating closer to bedtime. But it's interesting you say it's not just about the food before bedtime. It's it's actually, so it's probably a combo then, is it, of eating close to bed within two or three hours, but also reducing that sugar content before bed as well. Yeah, that's right. And keep, yeah, and keep in mind, we're not necessarily talking about a huge meal, but, you know, in those last couple of hours before bed, it might just be a snack that, that sort of gets them through. Um, but yeah, so, so like after doing that study, so that was just kind of a pr- perspective study where we followed and looked at associations. It's kind of hard to work out cause and effect like we're trying to speculate now. So, so since then, that's when we've, we've started doing some more sort of um, crossover type studies where we're, you know, with placebos and, and actually giving sort of dietary interventions. So, so that research is, is kind of underway and under review at the moment. Um, but uh, like I think the one we have under under review at the moment, we found like we 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 gave them a, a tryptophan drink um, or a placebo, and we found that the tryptophan didn't have any effect on their sleep. Again, this is in AFL players. Um, but one of the things with that study is that they they were all really good sleepers, sort of beforehand. So so this time we've got another study where we've we've sort of selectively recruited poor sleepers among the players. And then we're going to see if if a dietary intervention um, has an effect in that particular case. So, yeah, that's just, a, I guess, a, a sample of some of the other stuff we're doing in the diet sleep space at the moment. Excellent. All right, Spencer, thanks very much for your time this morning. If um, if people want to follow you on any of the social media channels or connect you on LinkedIn or, you know, even give you money to do research, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, um, so I... I've got a Twitter account at sshroberts. Uh, my, my email here at Deakin is s.roberts at deakin.edu.au. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, but that's pretty much that's pretty much it for me. That's enough to be on, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right, Spencer. Um, thank, like I said, thanks very much for your time. We will put that into the show notes. And um, 
yeah, let's uh, hang on the line for a moment and uh, we'll talk about some of that sleep and endurance swimming and stuff. But um, yeah. other than that, man, thanks very much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.